Thank you everyone for joining us. My name is Odette. I'm a trademark attorney at Sunstein and also one of the co-chairs for the IP section at the Boston Bar Association. And I'm just going to start off with a brief bio of all of our speakers and then we will start the program. Lisa Tittimore is a partner at Sunstein and the chair of litigation practice. Lisa is a seasoned litigator serving as lead counsel in patent, trademark, and copyright litigation in federal courts throughout the United States. Lisa has extensive experience in intellectual property matters, providing strategic counsel to clients on both domestic and international issues and guiding the firm's efforts in protecting and enforcing clients' valuable brands and ideas. Rebecca Tushnet is a professor at, of law at Harvard Law School. After clerking for Chief Judge Edward R. Becker of the Third Circuit and Associate Justice David Souter on the Supreme Court, she practiced intellectual property law at De Beauvoir and Plimpton before beginning teaching. Her work currently focuses on copyright, trademark, and for false advertising law. Professor Tushnet also helped found the Organization for Transformative Works, a nonprofit dedicated to supporting and promoting fan works, and currently volunteers on its legal committee. Peter Carroll is an Associate Dean, Professor of Law, and the Director of Intellectual Properties Certification Certificate Program at New England School of Law. Peter Carroll is also of counsel at Sunstein and counsels clients on all aspects of patent, trademark, and copyright litigation matters, as well as trademark and copyright portfolio development. He has experience in all aspects of intellectual property practice, ranging from federal court litigation to proceedings before the USPTO's Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, as well as brand and creative management and licensing. Catherine Sewell is an associate attorney at Sunstein. She concentrates in intellectual property litigation and trademark clearance, registration, and enforcement. She also has experience assisting with patent portfolio management and advising clients on intellectual property protection and global intellectual property strategies. I will now turn it over to Lisa, who will begin. Thanks, Odette. Um, I'm really excited about being here and happy to be invited. Um, and it's a great panel. I think we have a lot of different views and should be an interesting conversation. Um, it's always interesting when the United States Supreme Court takes up an intellectual property case for those of us in the field, wondering, oh boy, what will they do next to IP law? Um, this case is particularly fun as it combines humor, dog poop jokes, the First Amendment, and trademark all in one. So uh, this should be this should be a pretty good. Um, case for us to talk about these really important issues of uh, where um, the Lanham Act, the statute that protects um, trademarks um, and does so to protect consumers from confusion, as well as to allow trademark owners to protect their brands, um, intersects with First Amendment concerns. Uh, I'm going to start out by introducing some of the basic um, trademark law concepts and issues that arise in the case, sort of the background information, deep background maybe. I'll try not to spend too much time on it because um, we want to get right into the case, uh, the Jack Daniels, bad Spaniels case. Um, and Catherine's going to talk about that, or the specifics of the case and uh, how it got to the Supreme Court. And then I guess Rebecca is going to talk about the arguments of the Supreme Court, and then Peter's going to provide some background on some other cases. And then we'll have um, hopefully some interesting discussion about the potential outcomes um, 
after the Supreme Court um, makes its decision, um, in which it's it's currently contemplating. So, um, you know, the case that we're going to talk about today is VIP Products v. Jack Daniels. And like I said, Catherine's going to get into the details of that. But um, it's just helpful when we're talking about sort of the deep background to know that this case is really a dispute about, you know, the owner of uh, the Jack Daniels um, trademark and trade dress is in a fight with VIP Products that's made this um, chewy dog, you know, squeaky toy that you can see on your screen, the side by side of the two products. Um, and so for background, I just wanted to just explain that, um, you know, yes, this is a trademark case. Trademarks are identifiers of source. Um, a trademark can be a word, a name, a sound. Um, it includes what's called trade dress, um, which is basically the appearance, the overall appearance of a product or the product packaging. So in this case, we've got uh, you know, particular focus on the trade dress as well as the trademarks. Um, and under the Lanham Act, which is the federal statute that governs uh, trademark rights in the United States, um, infringement liability uh, requires um, that uh, there be use in commerce of um, an allegedly infringing uh, trademark in connection with um, the um, you know sale of goods and services, and also is showing that the mark is likely to cause confusion. And actually, it's worth just you know looking at the statute itself, which says that um, any person who on or in connection with any goods or services or any container for goods uses in commerce any word, term, name, symbol, or device, or any combination thereof, or any false designation of origin, false or misleading description of fact, or false or misleading representation of fact, which is A, likely to cause confusion, or to cause mistake, or to deceive as to the affiliation connection or association of such person with another person, or as to the origin, sponsorship, or approval of his or her goods and services or commercial activities, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, shall be liable in a civil action. Um, and so the Lanham Act is focused in this section, um, section 1125, on this concept of um, likelihood of confusion. And um, the courts interpret the statute um, using a combination of factors. And so we sometimes refer to this as the traditional likelihood of confusion factors or likelihood of confusion factors. And those factors include the similarity of the trademarks, the similarity or related nature of the goods and services, and that includes the zone of natural expansion. So even if the goods and services aren't identical, um, there's a zone of natural expansion and uh, there could still be confusion even if the goods and services aren't identical. Uh, the channels of trade, meaning how they're sold and where they're sold and the similarity of, of those channels of trade. The consumers, 
Uh, how similar are the consumers? Are, uh, are they sophisticated? Are they careful purchasers? Um, the intent of the accused infringer in adopting the mark, the strength of the asserted prior mark. So is this a strong trademark? Is it distinctive? Is it unusual? Is it in, in a field where there are lots of similar marks already existing, which might make it not as strong? Uh, the, these are all um, many factors that go into the analysis of likelihood of confusion. Uh, another factor is actual confusion. Has there been actual confusion? But it's important to note, actual confusion is only one of the factors and it's not required. Um, and, and, and likelihood of confusion is about uh, the probability of confusion, not, not the you know, near remote fanciful, you know, uh, confusion, but, you know, whether there's a, a, a probability of confusion, a likelihood of confusion, but it doesn't require actual confusion. Um, and uh, then, you know, the other part of the statute that is mentioned in the Jack Daniels case is the dilution um, uh, remedy, and that is a remedy that's available for only famous trademarks. So the owner of a famous trademark gets additional rights. And if their mark is a famous mark and someone uses it in a way that blurs or tarnishes that trademark, they can be liable for a dilution claim. And there are specific exemptions that apply in the area of um, dilution, including if um, the mark is being used by the accused infringer in a manner that's considered fair use, um, or it's a non-commercial use. And so these, these issues are part of the Jack Daniels case that we're gonna talk about, but in the interest of time, we're not gonna spend as much time discussing the dilution aspect of the case. Um, we're gonna focus on the likelihood of confusion aspect of the case. Um, and that likelihood of confusion aspect of the case pulls into play a test called the Rogers test. And that arises out of the second circuit in a case called Rogers v. Grimaldi. And Rogers was considering whether the Lanham Act could prohibit an allegedly misleading use of a film title. And in that case, um, the famous filmmaker Federico Fellini had a film called Ginger and Fred, released in 1986. And that film was about two Italian cabaret actors who imitated um, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire and um, then they uh, reunited after 30 years and had a television special. And the film was promoted as the bittersweet story of two fictional dancers and a satire of contemporary television variety shows. And so it wasn't actually about Ginger Rogers or Fred Astaire. It was about these people who, who um, were imitating them. And Ginger Rogers uh, filed a lawsuit um, saying that uh, because her name was used as part of the title, um, it was going to um, cause confusion and suggest that she was involved in the film when she wasn't. 
Um, the district court in that case ruled against her, saying that the title was not intended to serve a commercial purpose and therefore couldn't be protected under the Lanham Act. On appeal, the Second Circuit reversed and said, no, uh, that's too bright line of a rule. Um, films are works of artistic expression, but the free speech principles do not insulate the titles of artistic works from all Lanham Act claims. Um, and noted that titles like artistic works they identify are of a hybrid nature, combining artistic expression and commercial promotion. Um, and so in, in that case, um, the court basically created a rule saying that um, if there was if the title was artistically relevant um, and it was not explicitly misleading, um, then um, it would it would be allowed. It could be used, but if it if it was explicitly misleading, it it would it would not it would not be permitted. Um, and so that's a very different standard, explicitly misleading, than the likelihood of confusion uh, standard that is evaluated in the multi-factor test. Um, over the years, the Rogers test has been. Um, expanded somewhat, including by the Second Circuit and also in other circuits, but always to artistic works, literary works, and other sort of protected um, types of works. Um, and, uh, you know, all of the, pretty much all of the cases have, have been limited to things like songs or paintings or books or magazines um, until now, until the this case that we have in front of the Supreme Court, which is now talking about use on a, um, a squeaky dog toy product. Um, and, you know, one thing I wanted to mention about the Rogers test is that um, in the, that decision, the Second Circuit said, though consumers frequently look to the title of a work to determine what it is about, they do not regard titles of artistic works in the same way as the names of ordinary commercial products. Since consumers expect an ordinary product to be what the name says it is, we apply the Lanham Act with some rigor to prohibit the names that misdescribe such goods. But most consumers are well aware that they cannot judge a book solely by its title any more than by its cover. And so the Second Circuit was explaining that, you know, with an artistic work, the consumer is just going to view it in a different way than it views a commercial product. Um, so I think at this point, I turn it over to Kathleen. Great. Yes. Thank you, Lisa, for that review of the law and providing some context for our discussion today. So now I'm going to provide a little bit of background about the case and how we got to where we are, how it made it to the Supreme Court. Um, so I think many of us know that Jack Daniels is a famous whiskey company and they sell the Jack Daniels number seven Tennessee whiskey. You'll see on the screen here, this is the Bad Spaniels Chew Toy on the left, the Jack Daniels Whiskey on the right. And I just wanted to call out some of the similarities between the two. So you'll see the shape of the bottle is really quite similar and the font and color of the text. And then even within the text, you have, you know, Bad Spaniels instead of Jack Daniels, old the old number two instead of old number seven. Um, and then on your Tennessee carpet instead of Tennessee whiskey. So it reads the old number two on your Tennessee carpet. And even down to the detail of the, you know, 40% alcohol by volume, 80 proof, the toy substitutes 43% poo by volume and 100% smelly. So they're very, very similar. Um, 
And then Odette, if you can move to the next slide, please. VIP products designs, manufactures, and sells chew toys for dogs. And as you'll see, the Bad Spaniels dog toy isn't the only one that they sell. They have many products in the shapes of other companies' products, including beer, wine, soda, and liquor bottles. Um, they've actually previously been sued for using others' trademarks in Missouri, and they received an unfavorable result there. This particular case began when Jack Daniels sent a demand letter to VIP regarding the use of Jack Daniels trademarks and trade dress on the Bad Spaniels dog toy. Rather than responding to the letter, VIP filed a lawsuit in Arizona seeking declaratory judgment that the Bad Spaniels toy doesn't infringe or dilute any trademark or trade dress rights of Jack Daniels. So this isn't a situation where you have a creative artist who's sued out of the blue by a trademark owner. Uh, instead, this is a corporation who's you know, very deliberately manufacturing and selling products that use others' trademarks, chose not to respond to the demand letter and instead filed suit in the Ninth Circuit, where many believe it's going to be treated differently than in other circuits. And that's what we see has happened here with the Ninth Circuit's decision. Um, the circuit split is that one of the reasons that many of the amicus briefs supported review by the Supreme Court, including, for example, the AIPLA. So after a bench trial in Arizona, the district court entered a judgment for Jack Daniels on both the infringement and dilution claims and enjoined VIP from selling this bad Spaniels toy. And in arriving at this decision, the court focused on the traditional likelihood of confusion factors that Lisa just talked about. Um, and they gave some particular weight to a survey that was conducted by Jack Daniels' expert witness in which he found 29% of respondents believed that Bad Spaniels was made or put out by Jack Daniels. And so while 29% may seem low in some context, when you think about that's more than a quarter of consumers thought that this product was associated with Jack Daniels, it is quite high. Um, so on appeal, the Ninth Circuit it seems that they considered it to be a parody. They didn't actually use the phrase parody or the word parody, but much of the analysis relies on cases that were parodies. Um, just as a side note, the definition of a parody for our discussion, the Supreme Court has described it as a literary or artistic work that imitates the characteristic style of an author or work for comic effect or ridicule. So while they didn't use this word parody, they did say that it conveyed a humorous message and that it was a humorous um, excuse me, an expressive work entitled to First Amendment protection. So with this finding, the Ninth Circuit said that the, the Rogers test that Lisa introduced us to, um, talking about the Fred and Ginger dancers, um, should be applied. And they remanded the case back to district court. And regarding the dilution claim, they didn't really provide much analysis. It was two paragraphs. Um, and they just said it fell within the non-commercial use exclusion of the TDRA kind of ignoring the fact that there is a fair use exclusion for parity uh, that's not used as a trademark. So there's not much analysis to go on there. Uh, Jack Daniels filed a petition to Supreme Court and at that time it was denied. So now we're back in the district court in Arizona and on remand, the district court granted summary judgment in VIP's favor, but seemed quite reluctant to do so and even noted that the Ninth Circuit's decision or direction to apply the Rogers test made it nearly impossible for Jack Daniels to prevail. And so they entered summary judgment in favor of VIP. When Jack Daniels appealed, the Ninth Circuit just affirmed, and then Jack Daniels petitioned the Supreme Court, which has taken up the case. Uh, interestingly, rather than appealing only the Ninth Circuit's application of the Rogers test to this Bad Spaniels dog toy, Jack Daniels is asking the Supreme Court to throw out the Rogers test altogether. Uh, the importance of this case is really evident from the interest it's generated. 
So there were over 20 amicus briefs, I think maybe 24 filed in connection with the case, some in support of Jack Daniels, some in support of VIP, and some in support of neither, but just wanted to have their interests heard with respect to whether or not to reject or uh, firm the Rogers test. And the case has also generated significant media attention. So I'm going to turn it over now to Professor Professor Tushnet to talk about what happened during the oral arguments. Great. Thank you. So I uh, can already uh, see that we have some substantive disagreements on the panel, but um, I'm not uh, going to say a lot about predictions because I don't like to make them also because um, the, the, the oral argument is often not actually an opportunity to change anyone's mind, but sort of to test out theories uh, and uh, and address particular uh, questions the justices have rather than to actually convince them. Um, and, it's, and in this case in, in particular, um, the court did not focus on the reason that we have Rogers, the, the fact that uh, uh, trademark owners started suing uh, sort of uh, people who are very clearly speakers uh, and not conventional market competitors. Um, and the, uh, the, so the, at oral argument, um, there were some interesting points. Uh, so Jack Daniels uh, claims that uh, you have to always apply the traditional multi-factor likely confusion test um, because you have to, um, and and because the statute says so. Uh, Justice Sotomayor made the pretty uh, uh, correct point that the statute actually does not specify what the likelihood of confusion test is. Uh, and there can be reasons to have different tests in different circumstances, um, something that also occurs with things like first sale uh, or nominative fair use. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't clear how much uh, this view was shared, uh, although uh, 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 Jack Daniels did not seem to get a ton of traction for the idea that the statute could override the First Amendment, um, somewhat unsurprisingly. Um, um, uh, the other interesting things uh, that I noted at the oral argument is there's basically an intuitive concept of use as a trademark. That is, um, I am using this to brand my product in some way versus uh, I am talking about the trademark. And sometimes that's cashed out as nominative fair use. Um, but even in circuits that don't have nominative fair use or treat it differently, there's still some pressure to say, OK, you know, it should be trademark relevant in some way. Like we should we should we should believe that you're actually using the mark in a way that identifies you. And even though um, the formal doctrine in most circuits is uh, that if there's confusion, then perforce there must be use as a mark. The concept of use as a mark pops back up to deal with uncomfortable problems, even in the Second Circuit, which has purportedly rejected uh, a, a, a separate use as a mark requirement if confusion, uh, if likely confusion is found. And part of this is actually the gap between uh, confusion over source and then confusion about other things that you might be confused about. Um, and so there was some, I think, confusion at oral argument where the justices seemed uh, to to under to be attracted to the idea that there should be some sort of trademark use. Like you should be convinced that bad spaniels is actually like a trademark for VIP rather than just something they're doing. Um, but without too much uh, of a recognition of how the doctrine has evolved in, in lower courts. Um, 
So the related to that, uh, there's a problem in trademark that really reared its head in the oral argument, which is there are there are at least three concepts that sound alike but have very different meanings uh, and are often confused. So use in commerce, right, uh, is the jurisdictional requirement for the statute. You have to be making a use in commerce. But as you may remember from law school, pretty much everything is use in commerce, uh, including like failing to sell the grain that you own. Uh, and uh, and in fact, you know, the historically trademark uh, after the Lanham Act has been very expansive. So the New York Times is making use in commerce. The Red Cross is making use in commerce. The Republican Party is making use in commerce uh, for purposes of the statute. Then there's this idea of commercial use. And uh, that that's somewhere in the middle. So um, is the Republican Party making commercial use? Maybe uh, when it sells stuff, most courts would probably say yes. Then there's the question of commercial speech. So when the Republican Party sells Make America Great Again hats, is it engaged in commercial speech? And the answer to that is pretty clearly no. But the the gap between that is uh, something that that uh, I think lots of courts struggled with. Oral argument, the justices also seemed uh, to to be struggling with it because uh, you know the J Jack Daniels presentation is uh, you know well uh, uh, we don't like Rogers but if you if you like Rogers you should have it for books and movies not for commercial products but you know I've met very few movie makers who didn't want to sell their movie uh, the First Amendment doesn't distinguish between commercial products and non commercial products it distinguishes between commercial speech and non commercial speech some of which is sold for profit so this is a problem and it's not clear that uh, there's going to be a coherent approach that comes out on it. Um, and I will note, you know, at oral argument, this came up in several places, including uh, the uh, uh, Jack Daniels lawyer uh, claimed, made some very odd claims, including that Gone with the Wind isn't a trademark um, because it's just a title, um, even though there's a trademark registration for it. Uh, and she also claimed that TikTok videos aren't use in commerce, um, which, you know, they very much are. Uh, and most of them are probably not commercial speech, though. Some of them may be. Um, but that sort of confusion is evidence of why we got here and how we got so confused. Uh, and unfortunately, we may not get less confused after this case. Thank you, Professor Tushnet. Should I take it from here? Good. Okay, great. Um, so I am going to talk about uh, some of the Key precedents, I'll put it that way, that the Supreme Court um, it will ignore or not. Um, and this, uh, some of the um, uh, major cases, and there's two I've picked out in particular. There's obviously a number of cases that we could talk about if you're interested in cases that came before. I'm going to start with the uh, Louis Vuitton versus Hot Diggity Dog case out of the Fourth Circuit, which involved this Chewy Vuitton product. And yes, I did say Chewy Vuitton because that is the pillow that you're looking at on your screen, which is for some reason, I believe uh, a dog toy. Um, seems to be that the uh, these cases come up in the context of pets quite a bit. So we have um, this, this um, Louis Vuitton bringing essentially not just a uh, trademark case related to the word Chewy Vuitton, but also a trade dress claim, uh, infringement claim and dilution related to uh, the overall look and feel of the pillow that you see on the right compared to the you know multi-thousand dollar, whatever it is, bag on the left. That is the uh, original bag that you see. 
So how did the court approach it in the Fourth Circuit? Well, it, it did some really interesting things. And I'm wondering how much of this we're going to see in the final opinion of the Supreme Court. And what it did that was uh, very interesting was sort of really the way it approached the concept of parity. And it, it said, essentially, let's first talk about whether or not this is a parody. And as, for example, in the um, going through the factors, it then said, well, parody is not itself a defense in a trademark case. But you know what? It really does inform all of the multi-factor analysis. And it comes out to some really interesting conclusions within each factor for, by that. So for example, and this is different from actually the way that the court in um, the Jack Daniels case at Barr talked about it. It said, let's look at that strength of the mark factor, right? We all kind of assume Jack Daniels is a strong mark. And in this case, we all assume that Louis Vuitton and its trade dress are strong marks. But the court said, but yeah, but this is a parody. And when it's a parody, this factor actually cuts differently because as a parody, you have to have a strong mark. And we might all remember uh, either from law school or after, if you've talked about it, this concept in the parody cases at the Supreme Court and, and the appellate courts, which is that kind of the concept of parody is to conjure up the famous mark intentionally and then at the same time to push the person away and say, no, this is not it. You know, think of that, but don't think of that. And that is sort of inherent in the concept of parody. And so if we look at each and every factor, starting with strength of the mark, the fact that it's a parody informs the court's analysis of that, which I thought was quite interesting. And it goes through all the factors, what the Fourth Circuit uses as the pizzeria uno factors, uh, for those of you who have practiced in the Fourth Circuit. And it ultimately concludes that, you know what, there isn't um, going to be confusion here, uh, in part because of all the parody that's going on. Um, and the um, dilution case, it gets to, I don't want to spend too much time on dilution, but it does raise the dilution claim. And there's two uh, important things I wanted to talk about for dilution purposes briefly. One is to pick up on Rebecca's points about um, commercial use and having so many confusing examples of how commercial is used. We also have a statutory reference to it in this case, which is non-commercial use of a mark as a defense to dilution. Um, what the L, uh, court in Ho Diggity Dog says, which is quite interesting, is that, well, yeah, but that's there's a um, before that um, uh, gating term that says that this only applies to um, uh, any fair use other than as a designation of source, right? And so that brings in this question of whether or not the use in the, by the defendant is a designation of source in the Chuy Vuitton case, and it could also very much be in the Bad Spaniels case. Uh, in other words, is Bad Spaniels using it as a brand? And that would, if it was doing it in that way, potentially keep you from using that non-commercial use defense in dilution. Um, I have actually here the product, which is fun. I got it from Walmart before they became super popular at the Supreme Court case came on. Um, and you'll see that this may be uh, arguably the name of the product, but it actually, it's not in all our pictures that we have, but there's a hang tag attached to it, which makes pretty clear that the product line is actually called Silly Squeakers, right? So there's some interesting questions about that. The other case I wanted to raise, which is certainly not gonna be considered precedential uh, in any way, but I think it's really interesting to see the way it came out because it's very different. In fact, distinguishes the Louis Vuitton case. About a year after that Louis Vuitton case I just mentioned, there is the butt wiper case, right? And this is Budweiser um, suing none other than VIP products on a different example of one of their uses. Um, VIP products being the defendant in the case before the Supreme Court right now, of course. And here we have a very different kind of analysis. Here the court says, well, let's just go through the uh, traditional um multi-factor analysis. It doesn't do anything with Rogers. And it basically says, yeah, look at this strong mark. And it doesn't say anything about parity in that connection. So very different from the way the Louis Vuitton court treated it, where it said parity informs the strong mark analysis. The other thing that I think is very interesting about this um, 
district court, trial court level case, it's actually a magistrate judge that, that decided the case, is that it really put a lot of weight on surveys. And I think surveys is something that a lot of us um, who talk about these issues are worried about, and they're in fact used by plaintiffs and the way they can be sort of manipulated in some cases by plaintiffs to show a lot of what you want. Because here we had a lot of evidence, 30%, in fact, the court said, of consumers viewing this and survey said that, well, we're not, we think that Budweiser is affiliated with or might is the one is from Budweiser, right? And but the way they're saying it is if you look kind of more granularly at the survey responses, it's often like, well, shouldn't I think they should have had permission for that, right? Or I think that that this this is probably something that Budweiser said was okay. Um, and those kind of comments don't read to me like confusion, but they're sort of treated by the court uh, generally as evidence of a confusion, a likely confusion in that case, because there are sort of po positive associations between Budweiser and Budweiser, which essentially goes in the other direction of that parity idea, right? The whole point of the LVMH case, the Louis Vuitton case, excuse me, was, uh, yeah, parity has to make that connection in the consumer's mind. And this trial court essentially ignores that and ultimately ends up with a uh, decision, as Catherine was mentioning before, adverse to VIP products, adverse to the parity product in this case, and saying, no, this is confusing with a lot of weight being placed on the plaintiff survey in that case. And this kind of raised to mind an oral argument, you know, we have justices, basically some of them coming out and saying, I mean, does anybody going to think that Jack Daniels is putting out this toy, right, realistically? Um, but you can also always usually can come up with a survey to say, yes, some people either think that or they think that they had to get permission to do that, which is a slightly different question, but one that courts conflate all the time. Uh, so those are the two main cases that I wanted to talk about. And um, I think there, it's going to be really interesting to see what the court does with this one. I look forward to talking in a little bit about um, where this might go and what it might mean for trademark law. And I think next in our discussion will be um, uh, what happens uh, depending on who wins in the case. Do you want to start out with... What happens if Jack Daniels wins? Because um, I, I mean, I think that if Jack Daniels wins, right? As um, I think both the professors may have mentioned, um, there Jack Daniels is trying to get rid of Rogers altogether, and says that Rogers isn't an appropriate way to evaluate these issues, um, and in that case. Um, going forward, I think that's unlikely. I mean, I agree with with uh, Professor Tush that it's very difficult to make predictions. Um, but I do think that that seems unlikely based on the comments that were made at oral argument. Um, and, um, you know, but if that happened, then all of the cases um, whether it's, you know, uh, an artistic work or not will have to be evaluated under the traditional likelihood of confusion test um, until, you know, I mean, I, you know, I guess if that's what will happen if, if Jack Daniels gets what they're asking for. I mean, I think that's unlikely. I mean, I don't think that they're, my impression was that the, justices weren't inclined to overrule Rogers. I mean, maybe they'll make a new test. That's also possible, a different test. You know, some of them talked about that as a possibility. Some of them talked about perhaps adjusting the likelihood of confusion traditional factors to require a reasonable person standard. 
So that would get to what I guess Professor Carroll was saying to some extent with respect to the survey evidence that, you know, if the person being surveyed is just a, a knucklehead and is confused or says they're confused, that shouldn't be outcome determinative. It should be, you know, what a reasonable person would think. Um, so there could be a different test altogether um, that could come out of this case. But if if we're just looking at what happens if Jack Daniels wins, then we're just looking at all of this under the traditional likelihood of confusion factors. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Lisa. And I think it really underscores how much this case is going to matter how they win, not just if they win. Um, because one can imagine a, a range of different options that the Supreme Court would have of um, siding in favor of Jack Daniels. And in fact, it wouldn't shock me if we had some sort of plurality opinion of a lot of different writers here, people kind of doing it on different bases. And, you know, for example, if they wanted to touch Rogers, there's a number of amicus brief that offers alternative tests to Rogers uh, while keeping it. There are some uh, briefs that are essentially saying Rogers should stick to titles, right? And, and we've this extension from the original Ginger and Fred case, which was the title of a expressive work to video game content to um, greeting cards might have been walking too far down the road and we can pull it back and limit it somehow. Or as, as Lisa was suggesting as well, we might even end up with a court that goes so far as to just get rid of Rogers, which seems, I think, agree unlikely. So there's so much depends in this case, especially it's true with all Supreme Court cases, but this case in particular, how they choose to approach a potential victory for Jack Daniels will have a lot to say, um, especially for, for creators going forward who use other people's trademarks in their work. And it's just worth noting, you know, the Rogers case was in 1986 and it's never been addressed by the Supreme Court that I know of. I'm not aware of any time the Supreme Court has affirmed uh, Rogers unless Professor Tushnet is. So uh, well, it's a couple of years after that, but uh, uh, no, they haven't. And and at least one justice expressed some concern about uh, basically kicking out, you know, 30 years of common law development um, when uh, precisely because the Lanham Act doesn't have a confusion test listed, uh, the, the expectation pretty clearly was uh, that courts would continue to develop the common law uh, of of likely confusion. Um, and, and so, you know, that may, that may weigh on, uh, on, on at least some of the justices. Although I wouldn't say this court is known for, uh, its adherence to precedent, even its own. Fair point. And I guess the other question um, that we were asked to address was, well, what happens if VIP products wins? I don't know, Peter, if you or Rebecca Tushnet, if you want to. Yeah, I mean, well, if, if VIP products wins, I think we'll have more dog toys. Um, that's the big, big winner here is, is dogs. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, Professor Tushnet and I were, were uh, she was joking before about, you know, is this a case going to be about making the world safe for tchotchkes or not, or free expression within tchotchkes? So this might just be kind of a case that turns out to be limited to the strange world of sort of novelty items that are sold that pets chew on, right? Or or some limiting way of like, because this is a somewhat unique circumstance. Maybe not. You could certainly analogize this to broader things of those kind of gimmicky products that use brands for fun, right? And we could just imagine a sort of small universe where they win uh, because it's so obviously not related to, to Jack Daniels or Jack Daniels would never sell this. Um, 
But, you know, there again, on this side, there's multiple ways they could win, too. It could be a wholesale affirmation of Rogers in, in broad context of any type of expressive work. I think that would be extremely unlikely, um, but that would be a very different impact than just saying, well, nobody would really think this was confusing. And, and that's we should just rule that. Yeah. So uh, I, right. It's, it's very hard to say uh, my, my inclination to say uh, nothing really will happen. Uh, so I, I will just point out that in via, in Jack Daniels reply brief, uh, the parade of horribles that would happen if this decision stands was uh, vases mimicking Coca-Cola bottles, replica toy Mercedes, pillows resembling goldfish crackers, uh, or uh, keychains with miniature uh, Lucchese cowboy boots. On them, uh, which uh, I did not think sounded like a parade of horribles, maybe just like a parade, a kind of kitschy parade. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, part of this is uh, that uh, it is hit right on this intersection where, uh, you know, commercial speech doctrine has gotten much more protective of commercial speech. Um and and also uh, uh, the Supreme Court has very rigorously excluded a bunch of stuff from the category commercial speech uh, just because you make money from it doesn't make it commercial. And frankly, like from copyrights perspective, uh, you know, the squeaky toy is a is a, it's a soft sculpture. Right. So like it, it, it is it is an expressive work. Uh, it, it's it, you know, it would be the same thing if it didn't squeak. Uh, so it's it's just hard to say. And uh, I would prefer the court. Uh, to, you know, say, look, this isn't commercial speech. But even if it invents a new category of tchotchka, uh, at least for trademark, uh, as long as it preserves Rogers uh, at its core, like that's not going to be that's not going to be too bad. We'll just have to figure out what counts as a tchotchka. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue is going to be is if they issue a decision that is interpreted in such a way that there isn't, you know, any clear delineation and all of a sudden all different kinds of things are going to be um, suddenly uh, evaluated under the Rogers test. Um, and, and, you know, people but, are concerned that if it goes too so far. What? Well, so what? I mean, lots of brands use their brands to express ideas and concepts and, um you know, it's still uh, their brand and, you know, it's it's something that they feel very, um, you know, for example, the um, they have uh, a particular way that they want to be seen. And if it is very obvious that it's a parody, no one's going to be confused. So then that's not going to be a problem. But uh, that requires you to look at the likelihood of confusion factors. And I think that Professor Carroll made some really good points about uh, the Chewy Vuitton case um, and how differently the Chewy Vuitton case was analyzed by the Fourth Circuit versus what the Second Circuit did here. But so so here's the problem. And and, and uh, Professor Carroll did talk about this. Right. Uh, people who say they need permission. It, it's not as if this is a 
bottle of Jack Daniels made in plastic, right? How drunk would you have to be to fail to tell these apart, right? Uh, so the the confusion here is of a very different kind that, uh, uh, than uh, it, it is actually a confusion about what is allowed by the law. And that's, that's actually a, a mistake of law, or at least an opinion about law, not actually about this particular use. Uh, you know, it, and so uh, what it seems to me that Rogers can actually fully handle uh, the tchotchke market. Um, first of all, uh, there's uh, there's actually a pretty strong distinction between the package and the product, right? The product here, like you don't take off the Bad Spaniels wrapper because that's the joke. There's no independent like diluted urine or anything in that in that fake bottle. So uh, that's one pretty clear way. And again, you can draw on commercial speech doctrine. If it's the product being sold, then that as opposed to the packaging, then you at least think about Rogers. And then, frankly, I do think that we, uh, in, in, in this world, uh, we would see uh, a lot more attention to the explicitly misleading prong um, and we would have to do something. So what the Second Circuit does is it has a title versus title exception. Uh, if it's title versus title, uh, you don't apply Rogers directly. Um, you do a more searching inquiry because the, the plaintiff has rights in a title. Uh, and so, you know, uh, that's that's worth paying attention to. In the Ninth Circuit, they've uh, they haven't adopted the title versus title exception, um, but they they have in Gordon versus Drape sort of set forth some considerations for, you know, when when would a reasonable person be able to tell that there's a difference? Um and bad spaniels clearly uh, falls on the, the side a reasonable person would be able to tell the difference. And, and I understand trademark owners feel a lot of ownership and like and I, too, would love to have complete control out over how everyone reacted to me and how everyone spoke about me. Um, but in a society with free expression, that's not what we do. Uh, and it shouldn't be special for trademark owners. I do think it is interesting what you say about what the product is, because I do think that's also part of what's at issue here is a disagreement about that as well. Because, um, you know, from the dog's perspective, <laughs> it's the chewy thing that they're chewing on, not the label. The human who's buying it is buying it because it reminds them of uh, Jack Daniels and they think it's funny. Um, but ultimately they're buying it to give to their dog to play with. Um, it's not like a wacky packy, which is just a card or, you know, a, a piece of art. It's an actual dog chew toy that dogs are supposed to play with. So, you know, there is a commercial product there. I think one of the other things you talked about- a commercial about product. Was, sorry, what's that? A DVD is a commercial product. Uh, 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 if, if you're saying the distinction is like it's a mass market product, uh, it, I mean, again, we can make up a special rule for trademark that we don't have in anywhere else in First Amendment law. I just am unconvinced that we should. Yeah, no, but people don't buy the DVD because they want to have a plastic case. They buy it because they want to watch the film. And so they buy this because really... they think the it's funny what's no, what no, they're, no, no. they're buying it so their dog can play with it that's what they're buying yeah. it for they're not you know this isn't like a one-off thing that they're hanging on their wall 
Uh, I don't understand why it's not uh, something that brings a little bit of humor and joy into life. Uh, and I don't really see any principle that says hanging on the wall is different. I mean, you you buy one movie instead of another because you want to watch that movie. There's a whole wall of dog toys. You buy this one because it's the one that gives the message you like. I agree with you on that point. The reason why you might buy this one in particular is because it's reminding you of Jack Daniels. But the reason you're buying it is because it's a dog toy. Anyway, well, um, uh, so what? Yes, you want something in your life that, you know, gives you joy. Uh, it doesn't have to. Uh, so uh, so if it didn't squeak, would you agree it's clearly a soft sculpture? No, I mean, I wouldn't. OK, so things the, the that difference. I wanted to talk about was your comment about confusion. Um, because the statute isn't only talking about whether there's confusion that you think this is the exact same product and that you're accidentally buying the wrong product. It's also confusion as to affiliation, sponsorship, or approval. And I think that's another um, thing that this case goes to the heart of, is that many people feel like the Lanham Act, in going that broadly and protecting um, against likely confusion as to association or sponsorship has gone too far. I mean, that's not my personal view, but I do think that's something that is engaged by this case. All right, I'm gonna just um, stop us here because we have a couple of questions. So I just wanted to make sure we get time to get some questions. Um, let me just take a look and see. All right. one of Oh, I've been looking at the questions. I'm happy to answer one or two of them if you want me to. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Um, so I, there's sort of one one, I think, question in the chat is asking um, sort of a straightforward question about the case, which is what sort of arguments are bad spaniels making to say that they're a parody? Uh, and the questioner asked, doesn't parody have to comment in some way on the object of the parody? And my understanding from reading through the case and, and what they've said, the arguments they've made there is that Jack Daniels is taking itself too seriously. And essentially the parody is we're, we're taking a lighthearted approach to what your, your obsession with your brand, right? So the parody is not, you know, literally um, making fun of the product of the whiskey. It's making fun sort of of the corporate culture that that puts so much weight on the value of their brand and it sort of obsesses over it. Um, so I think that's sort of the direct answer of the argument they're trying to make as to why it's a parody. So I think uh, Justice Kagan and others doesn't agree that it's actually a successful parody at least. Um, so and then there was one other question about, um, uh, I see maybe this is a similar question, but this, why don't we just do a primarily commercial versus primarily artistic split for Rogers? Like look at the primary purpose, I guess, of, of the product and say, if it's commercial, then this side of the line, if it's artistic, then Rogers applies. And I guess, I think that would be really tough line to, to, to hold. Um, I, for example, is a Marvel movie primarily commercial or primarily artistic? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, um, I have my thoughts on that, but, um, you know, we could say the same thing for uh, all sorts of broad video game, right? Which is where a lot, some of these cases come out of in the Ninth Circuit. Or is that primary commercial artistic? So I just think it's a really tough line to, to hold. I did notice Campari in the Campari amicus brief um, talked about the um, argument that um, VIP was making that their message was that corporations take themselves very seriously. And Campari was saying that it was kind of a 
think they called it a post hoc rationalization um, because it wasn't uh, anything that was raised in VIP's um, complaint for declaratory judgment. And um, that then they raised the concern that, you know, you could really say that about any trademark, right? That any corporation um, is taking themselves very seriously. Yes, you could. Yeah. So that, that <laughs> I, I don't of, understand that kind of an argument. It's just sort of like, well, then, therefore, anything you know, anything goes. Well, no. Uh, so, so the, again, this is where the explicitly misleading part comes in. You can't. Uh, you, uh, I don't know of anybody who thinks that in general, because Jack Daniels takes itself too seriously, uh, you should be able to make counterfeit Jack Daniels, right? Uh, but uh, a dog toy called Bad Spaniels is not explicitly misleading about what it is. It's like we have one more question. Um, so well, one important fact that we haven't really touched on in this case, I get, let me just say, is that, you know, Jack Daniels does license and is entitled to license its trademarks and does do it. And so uh, they, I think, Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong, don't they Don't they have a number of uh, products besides whiskey that are licensed? They do, they extensive license, or sorry, they license extensively. They have quite a few products. I was even just recently at the chocolate shop across the street buying a present for someone and there were chocolates manufactured by someone else with the little Jack Daniels label on it. It's not limited to food stuff and beverage stuff. They have t-shirts, hats. And one, one of the uh, distinguishing points that the uh, court in the butt wiper case used against the um, LVMH case was to say that, well, yeah, but in the uh, Budweiser actually has all sorts of dog leashes and that sort of thing with the Bud logo on it. Whereas um, to the extent that LVMH had it, they were sort of super high-end versions of a dog collar, I think with diamonds on it or something. Um, so these are just very different product type comparisons. So um, there is some attention paid to that. Right. And in that case, um, they said that there was no likelihood of confusion, right? In the butt wiper case, they did. Um, they said there was confusion as opposed to the LVMH, the Chewy Vuitton, where there wasn't, correct? So because okay. the huge product uh, price. Exactly. Yeah, no, I was talking about Chewy Vuitton. And Chewy Vuitton, they said there was no likelihood of confusion. Correct. And so, it, you know, okay, you can have that kind of a joke. You can have that kind of a humorous, fun thing in your life because it's not going to cause consumers to be confused. And that's going to be fine. And butt wiper was right. I mean, th this is what this is why it's so dangerous to have individual judges who have different views on the propriety of, you know, essentially what they see as free riding. Like the facts are not different between butt wiper and Chewy Vuitton. The judges were different. And, and, and that's just independently bad for the system. Actually, the facts are quite different because a Louis Vuitton bag is very different than a bottle of beer. And both are very different from a dog toy. And but and and the similarity, by the way, and I think we really uh, we really need to talk about similarity because and Rogers really does pay attention to that with its explicitly misleading prong. Uh, neither butt wiper nor Chewy Vuitton are 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 they are evocative, but they are not copies of the mark. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's just uh, maybe a view that. Um, it's not so far for a liquor company to 
the licensing products to, uh, you know, things like candy or. Sure. And if they had used Jack Daniels, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't be, uh, you know, making these arguments. Uh, but Bad Spaniels is not Jack Daniels. Which gets us perfectly to another question in the chat, I think. Right, Odette? <laughs> I see you nodding your head. Um, whether whether uh, Bad Spaniels should or uh, would have been able to register Bad Spaniels as a trademark for dog toys. Um, they haven't, as far as I know, tried to formally apply for it. Um, there was some strategic question about whether that's a good idea because you're obviously sort of walking yourself into that problem. We talked about a little bit in the dilution space where you want to be using other than as a mark for dilution protection, some of the dilution protections. And that's essentially an admission on the record that you're using it as a mark. So if you are a defendant who's in the business of, of, of parodying uh, brands, I would probably recommend if I was your counsel not to be registering your your parody names as trademarks so you can sort of have a little more protection against that dilution approach. But I don't see any reason why they couldn't take that position and say, screw that, I don't care, and, and file it to protect as a trademark itself. Actually, I think that um, that is relevant in the facts of this case, right, Catherine? Relevant in what way, sorry? Well, in that uh, there was some discussion about the fact that they had registered trademarks in other products, similar products, but had VIP I'm talking about, but did not register this particular one. Is that right? That is correct. They did not register this. Um, and so it does become an evaluation of how are they using it? Are they using it as a trademark? Some take the position that Silly Squeakers is the trademark. Um, others may say Silly Squeakers is really just a name for that line of products. And then Bad Spaniels is the trademark for that actual product. And it's being used to identify that specific one. So you buy this Bad Spaniels toy rather than buying, you know, a toy that resembles someone else's bottle. Um, so, and that is really relevant to the anti-dilution provisions or the exclusions to the dilution statute because the parity exclusion is only available if the parity is not being used as a trademark. And right, but the non-commercial exclusion. There were some other. Um, didn't didn't we see that they had registered trademarks for some of their other products? I believe so. I'm not certain of which ones. Okay. I will just point out that the non-commercial exclusion does not have a use as a mark uh, a requirement, uh, which is also quite quite relevant. And again, because there are lots of non-commercial users who have perfectly valid marks, right? The Republican Party, the New York Times, the Catholic Church, uh, those are all non-commercial user, users uh, with valid registered marks. And again, this is something that, you know, courts uh, courts have real trouble with, um, uh, not just in this space. All right, I think that's all of our questions. Um, so I will see if Devin is back. Um, yeah, I just wanted to hop on, say thank you so much to our panel for speaking today, and thank you so much to our audience for joining us. We certainly enjoyed this conversation, and we look forward to seeing you at future events. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you, and thank I you. see our audience said that VIP products registered smell-a-paw. <laughs> so I guess they've registered. And I, I know Chewy Vuitton tried to, uh, they applied for Chewy Vuitton as a, a trademark as well, Naka. 
Well, thank you to the anonymous attendee who, who provided that detail. Most appreciated. 